The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, creating new challenges and opportunities to defend against sophisticated attacks. At Northrop Grumman, we provide a wide range of capabilities to stay ahead of these threats. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com backslash cyber. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today to discuss the legal implications of President Biden's cyber executive order is one of the nation's leading cyber attorneys, Cy Alba, who is a partner with the Piliero Maza Law Firm. Cy, thanks so very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Good to be here. Uh, and before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy and our coverage uh, at the Navy League's uh, recent Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine, while our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine. Sai, uh, you were at the GovMates uh, Institute uh, Conference uh, last week, the Sucker Punch, reevaluating your supply chain. It was a fascinating discussion. Uh, John Cofrancesco uh, of Fortress uh, Information Security uh, was uh, among our guests uh, last week, um, one of the sponsors of the conference. I should point out uh, your law firm was a sponsor as well. The, the question is, what, what, what are the main regulatory requirements uh, that are going to be driven by uh, President Biden's executive uh, order when do we expect them to come into play? Because John was very thoughtful about, look, there's a massive amount of stuff that's coming down the pike for people. You know, the executive order is, is trying to improve the nation's security, but in so doing, right, there are always challenges, question marks, goals. It's both good for attorneys, maybe not so good for attorneys. <laughs> anyway, let, where, where do we stand and what's happening? You know, there's been a number of things, I guess, kind of like if we go a little bit further back, there, there's a number of things that have been happening and in DOD in particular, there's been a lot to protect CUI and uh, m make sure that sensitive information, even unclassified in information is protected in some way, shape or form. And so there's been rules out there about this is what you have to do. You have to be NIST, you know, 800-171 compliant. And there's been talk about CMMC, which is sort of further down the road. We don't have to go into that rabbit hole. But there's the those, those issues. Then a couple of years ago, you had Section 889 of the National Defense Authorization Act of 2019, which prohibited sales and even use of certain Chinese manufactured technology. And now on, on top of that, as all these things have been rolling down the pipe, the Biden administration put out the executive order that you were referring to that is really meant to strengthen cybersecurity in a whole host of ways. Uh, they're requiring federal agencies, the first piece of it is requiring federal agencies to look at what they have internally, what they need to fix, what their weaknesses are, and to come up with a somewhat comprehensive strategy uh, about how to implement stronger cybersecurity throughout the federal government and to have some sort of uniformity in the government. And part of that, most importantly for what we're talking about, is getting contractors on the same page. And so right. they, this, this executive order is requiring that the FAR Council put out some draft regulations on what exactly they think is the most important elements of cybersecurity, likely by mid-September. And then we should have final regulations. I think the goal in there was about eight months from now. Uh, 
and I think the the main the main piece that's getting so much play in this executive order is the requirement for a software bill of materials, which is essentially a you know recipe list is what a lot of people call it. It's what exactly is all the code that went together to build the software that you're using? And is it all safe? Is it all secure? Is there some sort of breach? And making sure that there are rules in place for providing that software bill of materials to the, the government in some way, shape or form, checking to make sure that none of the software that is on that bill of materials in that recipe list has been compromised in, in any way, that it's all that you know what all the code is that goes into your software, you know what every line does and there isn't some malicious code hiding in there. And making sure that you provide all that to the federal government so that they can check and that's part of what's going on right now is they're trying to determine how do we check, how do we determine these things, especially because so much stuff is open source right now that people pull information from various, you know, GitHub libraries, which is uh, for people who don't know, it's basically right. these online areas or portals where a lot of open source code is stored and you can just kind of look for it and find whatever piece of code that does whatever you want. Uh, and download it and incorporate it. In most cases, it's it's free and, and uh, open source, like I said. But in some cases, right, uh, that software is actually engineered by Chinese to Russian uh, guys who want the popular software embedded into uh, other software that, that they have in order to be able to create backdoors and other uh, potential uh, vulnerabilities. John discussed that a little bit last week. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it was you. I think you made the joke, right? If a screen comes up and it's in Cyrillic, you probably shouldn't use, <laughs> you shouldn't use that piece of software uh, in. So, so the interesting question, so let me just try to push on this um, a little bit, right? So, and I want to get to the bill of materials issue uh, in in a in a minute, right? Because it's it's also how companies respond, right, uh, to this. Because uh, obviously everything is discoverable, and there are a whole bunch of series of challenges about that. But how how is this going to affect prime contractors, the the executive order, and how is it going to affect subcontractors as well, in your estimation? And and what you know, and and where do we need to be? as opposed to where we may end up, right? I mean, it, you know, um, obviously folks are trying to inform this process, you know, anything that's in front of the Federal Acquisition Regulations Council, uh, it's an iterative process and it goes back and forth with industry in their comment and review periods. But, you know, what do we think is gonna be the impact on primes and, and subs? Where is it that we need to end up in what the, what, what's the right impact to have on them, if, if you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and I think what is probably going to come out in the draft rules, if, if you compare it or, or look at the 889 regulations that, that came down in uh, 2020, and what we're expecting some new ones also anytime right now um, about part of 889. And in those regulations, what they said is that, look, here's all this stuff that applies to prime contractors. You have to certify that you're not using any of this equipment. You have to do some due diligence you have to make a reasonable inquiry as to whether or not you're using this in your business. And you certainly can't sell this stuff to the federal government. As to the subcontractors, what they did in that regime, which I think is analogous here and what I'm anticipating, 
is they said, look, you don't have to flow that exactly down. Like you can't, you don't need to flow down the prohibition on use to your subcontractors. Your subcontractors in theory could use this prohibited Chinese technology in other areas of their business, but as to what they are selling to you or the services they are providing to you as a prime, they cannot use and must certify that they are not using that kind of technology. Um, in addition, for both the prime and the sub in that 889 regime, there's also a requirement that if you find out that you have sold something to the government or you are using some of the prohibited technology in the prohibited fashion, you have one day to tell the government and 10 days to provide a full report to the government as to how that use or violation happened, what you were doing to make sure those sorts of violations would not happen, and how that sort of failed, how those, those right. policies, and then what you're going to do to fix it in the future. That regulatory scheme, I think, is what we are going to see or something similar to it with regard to this executive order as far as the software you're using and the cybersecurity requirements that, that you have to say, look, primes are going to have to really make sure that likely their entire business is free of potentially malicious code, as you mentioned, because the bad guys, if you call them, right, are out there producing great pieces of software, right? They have like amazing software development folks to make really useful right. things and put them on GitHub so you'll get them and you'll use them and everyone will start using them. Well, so the question is, right, um, what one day and, and 10 days are pretty aggressive. And one of the points that you drove home uh, in uh, your presentation was like this time they're serious, right? So they are likely to come after people, especially if they see negligence, right? If it was an honest mistake, you own up and you fess up to it. It's, it's you know, it always is better than sort of getting caught out and being like, look, what did you know? When did you know it? And what do you mean? You buried it for 30 days and da, 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 da. But um, ultimately in that bill of materials, how do you, how do we know what's actually in them? Because ultimately, one of the big challenges uh, that John discussed and others have discussed, right? The Chinese chips don't necessarily have their names on it. And then the chips go into uh, three levels down and then eventually has the prime contractor's part number on it. Well, there's a lot of drilling down you've got to go to get to the mechanics of the chip and the reality that it may be phoning home. Uh, right uh, at, at a certain level, which is an unfortunate thing that we found all of this. In part, some of it is hardware related, but but some of it is software related. And, and we ourselves have incorporated that backdoor software into these components, right? I mean, how do we have an infrastructure in place to be able to objectively tell us what it is that's in every single thing that we have in there, whether it's in a hardware, whether it's for hardware or for software? Yeah. And I think to to be frank, from the software perspective in particular, that is very difficult. I don't think we have anything in place right now. And even on the hardware side, which is where more some of the 889 stuff comes into play, they've put that on the contractors. And I think the same thing is going to happen now with software to say, look, any of this software that is from any of these prohibited sources or prohibited countries 
you you can't use any of that. But to your question, how do you know? I think they're going to put some sort of reasonable inquiry standard on there, which is incredibly vague. I understand that, um, which is actually good, I think, for contractors, maybe bad for society, because at some point we're going to have to figure out some mechanism to really trace the sources of every piece of subcomponent of hardware or subcode inside software. And I know that there are companies out there who are on the kind of bleeding edge of this who are doing that. And they're going to make a, a market-based solution, which is you know, it's very American, a market-based solution where you could subscribe and s- similar to um, like an antivirus program, right? Right. Right. Those companies go out there and they scour the world and the internet and everything for malicious code. And then once they find something, they categorize it and they say, okay, this is something we're in our list. And you get mutations from it and things like that. I think the same thing is going to have to happen here from a hardware software perspective so that you might not catch everything. Like in the, the uh, antivirus world, there's like zero day vulnerabilities that no one knows about yet, right? That someone exploits. That, that's inevitable. That's just going to happen. And I don't think the government can hold contractors accountable, certainly be unreasonable to hold a government, uh, government contractor accountable for some software that is completely unknown that was you know, put out by the uh, Chinese government or the Russian government or even others, right? I know even some of our allies do a good deal of, of spying and espionage and we do too, right? So I think there's going to be in the short term, like a reasonable inquiry standard, where to, to what you said before, if, if you're using some GitHub library and it says, hey, please approve this license that you agree to this, you know, click here, and it's in Cyrillic, you should probably not use that. Right. That, and, and that's where the government, I think, could say that goes beyond mere negligence into reckless disregard for the truth, because you saw that pop up and you didn't ask any questions. You just said, sure, no problem. Right. That, that's what's going to get you probably in the most trouble. Uh, right. Um, well, some of the best advice is the most obvious one, although I could actually see some, you know, I, I would like to see, think nobody would do that. But if you have a, you know, right, if you're trying to deliver something on a tight deadline and you're like, ah, uh, well, there are good developers in Russia. No, I don't, I don't know how many people are doing that. Um, very quick word uh, from our sponsors. Uh, General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology and L3 Harris sponsors our joint all domain command and control uh, coverage. So what what will happen if contractors do not comply with this, um, are caught, uh, do get into trouble, right? I mean, you said that the, the government is sort of making it clear that looking the other way are not going to be options going forward. How does, so what, what does a book thrown at you look like and how heavy is the book? Yeah, that's where I, I think for individuals who, where something really bad happens, that's, you're going to get a heavy book thrown at you very hard. Um, However, if it's an issue where you've just discovered something that you're not sure what it does, but it was potentially from these prohibited sources, uh, depending what the regulations say, I could see a situation like that. You self-report, you say, this is what happened. This is how it's not going to happen again. I think there's going to be a scheme like that. Like I said, that's going to be required. 
And that's probably it. As long as you purge it and you put something in place to make sure you're checking for those sorts of issues in the future. However, if you did see that sort of pop-up that is, you know, is it Cyrillic and you clicked on it, you learned that not only was this code potentially prohibited, but it, it was also communicating and, or it has infected your broader systems and there's been other exposure and potentially it's had access to CUI information, which would, there's already other regulations that require disclosure of that and, uh, you know, cleanup that you'd have to do for the sort of spillage events if information leaks out. Um, and if you really did put your head in the sand or you did it on purpose, which nobody really does it on purpose, but if hopefully, <laughs> but if you, if you really did ignore something that you should have, that's more than negligence, that's reckless disregard for the truth. And in that context, that's where you get into False Claim Act liability, where the, the damages to the government, let's say that they decide to clean up a spillage event. I mean, what does it cost to clean up spillage of information that's on the internet? It's almost infinite, right? So that's, the, that's a serious risk. Um, what... You know, there is a lot of, uh, obviously, discussion on how to address uh, everything from ransomware uh, to breach reporting requirements, right? I mean, you're a pioneer in thinking and, uh, and actually pra practicing on ransomware issues uh, as well uh, in, in your portfolio. And obviously, uh, Dmitry Alperovich has been on the show uh, before of the Silverado Technology Accelerator, uh, for, you know, one of the co-founders and former CTO of CrowdStrike. Uh, and one of the things that Dmitry has been talking about is the banning of cryptocurrency, for example, right? Uh, you know, in order, in order to sort of better police the space, although you could, you could argue, right, electronic fund transfers uh, in Colonial Pipeline and others, the government has been able to recover a portion of, of, of some of these monies and ransoms that are paid. What What's the right approach on ransomware, right? I mean, folks are saying that it should be banned. Uh, then there's the cryptocurrency part of it. Then there is the reporting requirement, right, that you have to come clean if, if you've been uh, shaken down uh, all the way to, hey, you don't negotiate with terrorists. You should do better defenses, better backups. And, and you move on. I thought Baltimore's answer of telling uh, Branson, you know, like, hey, we're not paying a penny for this. Keep all the city data, uh, which I'm sure the guys involved in that didn't expect that answer. Uh, or maybe they don't know Baltimore well enough. How do we need to think about all of these issues, Sai? Yeah, so I think there's different types of, of um, like malware, right? And uh, crypto, crypto lock stuff. So if if somebody gets the data versus just somebody locking down your system and not, not having access to the data, um, I think those are two very different things. Whereas if they get the data, there's a lot more risk, right? And nine times out of 10, that, that's what they use. That's the, the newer software. That's exactly what it does. So they have access to it and you don't. Um, I think if we really wanted to stop that, you kind of have to stop the, the source of the monetary value to it. So do you do that by banning negotiations and just that would, by its very nature, force companies to have more security? Um, backups are not as effective as they used to be, though, because a lot of this stuff sits dormant for weeks on end until it's infected all of your backups. And so um, I think everyone has a part to play in that. But then 
there's something to be said, I think, for if you banned cryptocurrency, it would not be untraceable. Um, now, granted, I know there are ways to trace things like you mentioned already. The government has gotten some stuff back. So people who think it's it's completely untraceable, it, it's not. Um, but that that's the idea is that there's this anonymous network and the rest of the world's fund transfers, even to other other places that um, have really locked down banking systems, you know, Cayman Islands, whatever, mm-hmm. um, they even are subject to law, right? You can show up or you can put pressure on the government. You can't do that in a, a distributed network system like uh, various cryptocurrencies. And so I, I, I do think there's going to have to be something done there or this is just going to continue, especially if people are paying ransoms. Do you, so what does an integrated approach to this look like in, in your way that neither, that improves security, but also does not become burdensome for companies, right? I mean, on the one hand, I I know the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, Tom Fanning, the uh, chief executive of Southern uh, Company Nation's number two utility, you know, is one of the people who believes, look, you know, it's it's important to come clean on major cyber hacks and companies should disclose them uh, as as just part of good business uh, hygiene. And for, you know, it will differentiate the companies that take things seriously and, and the ones that, that don't. And unfortunately, a big part of this challenge has been that people are being penny wise, pound foolish about how they've gone, gone about their uh, most important commodity, which is their intellectual property. Um, you know, what's, what's the right approach to getting to that better level of security in your, in your view? So I, I think there has been somewhat of a market failure here um, because it, it's just been seen for so long as a cost center and nothing else that that security just hasn't been taken as, as seriously. But now with more of the malware that's, that's out there and things like the pipeline being locked down, although even there is a good example of where it wasn't even the pipeline. It's not like they shut the pipeline down. They shut down the ability for the company to track things so they could bill it. And so in order to save money, they shut the or be able to make money, they shut the pipeline down. So there could be some regulations around, um, you know, essential services like that, not being not being able to just shut down unless there's some major issue and then figuring out how to reimburse companies for certain certain losses. And as long as they're being diligent and, and have that that you know, cybersecurity up to some standard. That's where I think there could be some place where you incentivize companies to do it. And then the market should, should re- react to that, right? Where if you or I are going to stop using certain things, if we don't have uh, some sense of, of security, uh, that could do it too. And I think that's where this, this cybersecurity executive order is trying to drive it from inside the government out, so that if all these government contractors need all these certifications or stronger cybersecurity, or they can only do work with certain companies that have software bill of materials, this is the world's largest buyer who's going to start telling the people that want to sell to it, you have to do this. And anyone who feeds in that chain, which at this point is almost everyone in this area, um, they're all going to have to get on board. And that's where I think this is trying to go. And it could be it could be very effective if it's done correctly. I'm interested to see what happens in September with the regs. 
Well, and 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 what in, uh, in just uh, two uh, quick questions. So, what has to happen for the regs to get it right? Like, what what's the nuance that federal regulators have to get right for this to succeed in the way the president, the administration, and ultimately everybody, right? I mean, everybody wants it to succeed. What's the right way to make it succeed? What does it have to say? And maybe what does it not have to say? So I, I think in the, in the initial regulations in the short term, what I'd like to see is, yes, we have, there's going to be some sort of software bill materials. It's going to be incredibly onerous, um, but this is a serious issue. And so I, I think it's, it's right for them to have something in there that requires companies to provide that um, directly to the government in the short term. In the long term, I think we need to have some database or multiple databases for multiple sources, just like we were talking about before, like the uh, antivirus companies that were tracking these things carefully and then potentially having just a certification instead of having to provide the full software bill of materials every time, because that's dangerous too. Because if that gets out, and someone knows exactly how you've developed your piece of software and every piece of code that came from every location, they can take that and either use it anti-competitively or go against you, or more importantly, um, some adversary could take that and say, okay, look, these are the things we've now found that 90% of federal contractors, because of this rule, are using these particular sources of code. Let's make something a little bit better and infuse it with uh, some sort of backdoor or some sort of malware, something like that, that'll go undetected for some period of time. And um, that's where I think having some, either the, it's either the government or market-based, it seems right now it's going to be market-based, to really scour that and make sure that these things don't happen. I think that's probably the best approach to do it, to minimize the impact and allow everyone to you know, not have to spend their own money to do that. If you have companies that sell that, then the cost is going to drop dramatically. And it would also, if it's done right, give the government and uh, private sector confidence in it. Um, let me, uh, we have uh, two minutes and, and two questions. Uh, I would be remiss because you were hinting at CMMC, uh, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Process. That's unclear where we're going with it, right? It's still on. It may not still be on. Was that a good approach? Is that approach necessary to rapidly improve cybersecurity? Because some people see it as, hey, it's better than nothing and we should do it. And other people are like, what is it you're trying to achieve? And it, is that the way to get you there uh, necessarily? What's what's your sense about whether that's a good approach or not? And then I have a legal, stove, cyber legal stovepiping question to end it on. Yeah, so I, I think CMMC as a concept is probably a good a good idea. I think they, they need to be much more specific. And I, I know it's still in development and how fast it's gonna be it's gonna be rolled out. But I think what I've heard from most people is that the fact that it's still vague, it's like the NIST standard, the 800-171 or things, it wasn't really made. To be, to be just a blanket rule set, like a regulation. It was sort of a best practices with vagaries or sort of interstices in between. So you could choose how you meet those general requirements. And if you're gonna have something for government contractors, 
I think you want to be specific because if you're vague about different things, everyone's going to interpret it differently. It's going to cause probably more problems than it's worth. And let me ask you one last question about cyber uh, stove uh, piping. Um, what are the unique challenges in cyber law that may not be the same as other areas of the law and, and business? Because we see a little bit of this in the military where the broader military is, is not as savvy uh, and cognizant of cyber issues. And yet cyber is what affects, frankly, the ability of the United States military to do anything, right? What may knock your unit out will be a cyber attack or an electromagnetic attack combined with something that's in cyberspace that actually knocks your weapon system out as opposed to a kinetic effect, right? And there's this tendency of us thinking in stovepipes. Is that a problem in cyber law also where, where you're, you're sort of in a stovepipe and not everybody is thinking cyber, you know, it's sort of the cyber people are thinking cyber and call sci as opposed to the boardroom calling sci uh, and, and making sure that it, it is as knowledgeable about these issues as they are in their core business. Because ultimately we're all information companies that do different things with our information that, that have outputs with it, right? I mean, at the end, we're all dependent on cyberspace. Yeah, I, I do see that as a pretty major issue. And it, it crosses, it's it's not like an age thing. It's it's not like an industry thing. I've seen it all over the place where people are very good at, at what they do and they have zero understanding of how things work, how their computers work that they use every day or what the general um, system setup are. And so be, because of that, uh, I think that really heightens the risk because the number one risk factor in all of this is every single person who's using a computer in any company or any organization. Because you click on the wrong thing or you um, answer the wrong you know, email, then you're just off to the races. And we've had clients who accidentally did things and they had millions of dollars transferred to different accounts. Um, so it's... I think people really need to start focusing on how their businesses work and what really runs instead of waving it off as like, that's the IT guy's problem. Because if you don't understand how your business systems and how your company functions, it is all related to cyber at this point and electronics and email and the internet and everything else. If you don't understand the basics of how that stuff works, you're not going to understand the value in protecting yourself. You just see it as money going out the door. And that is the most dangerous thing because complacency is what will really shut down a, a business and the government. Sai, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Everyone is a contributor at Northrop Grumman, and every day is an opportunity to help defend our nation and our allies. Visit our careers page at ngc.com to learn about joining the Cyber and Intelligence Mission Solutions team.